and welcome to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm your host, Lori LeBay, and I'm so excited that you're joining us today. We are going to have a fascinating conversation, as usual, as we learn from people all around the world at all ages and stages of life. Stay tuned as we shift our dementia care from crisis to comfort. Here we go. What you think about Well, hi, everyone, and welcome back to Alzheimer's Speaks Radio. I'm thrilled you could join us today. We're going to have a really interesting conversation about developing dignified transitions for people living with dementia um, that are advocating so loud and proud and doing an absolutely wonderful job. But before I introduce our guests, I always like to welcome new listeners. We get people listening all around the world, and we are thrilled that you're joining us today. And we hope that you will like, click, and share, and subscribe to our show so you don't miss any details at all. If you want more information about Alzheimer's Speaks, you know, my mom had dementia for 30 years, so I'm out here to change the world and to shift caregiving from crisis to comfort. And so if you go to alzheimerspeaks.com, you will find free resources page. You'll find multiple resources that we offer from tools to radio shows to dementia chats where people with dementia uh, give us their insights to dementia in the arts, where they highlight their their work and what they get out of it, uh, to dementia map memory cafes and so much more, along with a lot of public events. Please go to alzheimerspeaks.com. We're going to hear from the adaptive equipment and caregiving corner, and then we'll be right back with our guests. I love the footbar walker, and let me tell you why. It is the option for my toolbox that I've been waiting for. Let's be honest. There are some clients who, despite our best rehab efforts, just aren't able to return to performing a sit-to-stand transfer on their own. Now I can offer my caregivers an easier, safer option that doesn't involve hoisting their loved one up from a sitting position. I don't recommend this walker for all of my clients, but I do recommend this walker for those caregivers looking for an easier, safer option with transfers. I would also encourage other therapists to add this walker to their toolbox. It's kind of like having my own mobile parallel bars for the client to pull up on. Whether it's a family caregiver at home helping a loved one with Parkinson's or dementia, CNAs in a long-term care facility assisting their patients, or therapists adapting to client and caregiver-specific needs, we now have a very safe and effective option to offer in the Footbar Walker. Check this product out at thefootbarwalker.com. That's it for today from Adaptive Equipment and Caregiving Corner. Have a great day, and don't forget, if you can't do it, adapt it. So today I am thrilled. We, again, are going to be talking about people with dementia advocating and how organizations can help them develop a a good, solid transition um, as their disease progresses, which is dignified for them and allows them to still be part as things change within their own disease process. So first today we have Elam Caspi with us. He is a gerontologist. He's a a dementia behavior specialist. He's an author that has written the book, Understanding and Preventing Harmful Interactions Between Residents with Dementia. 
He also co-facilitates with me when his schedule allows dementia chats, which are video um, educational webinars that we do where we really allow the, the people with dementia to be the experts and share their insights. In addition, we have Cindy Lazinski with us, who is an RN, the founder and executive director of Dementia Together, and in my opinion, one of the best and leading dementia-friendly communities in the U.S. Both of them have contributed to Alzheimer Speaks um, multiple times, and I so value not only them as colleagues, but as friends and I think this conversation is going to be really, really interesting. So I'm so excited today to have Cindy and Elon with us today. You know, we are going to be having, I think, a really interesting conversation, one that might be kind of hard for some people to hear. But I want you to know that this conversation about developing a transitional process for people living with dementia who are wonderful advocates we want you to call into the, the next show that we have. I'll be posting that. We want to hear what you're doing because none of us know everything. But I know for me personally, I have seen in the past 10 years, families and people with dementia finally being embraced and pulled into the conversation. I'm seeing uh, them, them being more valued by organizations, large and small, in terms of the positions and their voices being able to be heard. I also saw that pull back a lot during COVID and everything kind of shut down on many levels. And that was harmful to the, to their personal situations, their ability to connect and, and move forward in some ways. And so today I really want to focus because I, I hear so many people come to me and go, you know, I feel purposeful. I love doing this job. I'm thrilled to be part of this organization and my voice to be heard, but I'm really struggling. I can't do what I used to be able to do. And what I'm hearing, again, from people around the world and all different types of organizations is that they don't feel like they're being heard when, they're, when they try to say that. And then it's kind of an all or nothing. Either you do the whole job or you don't do it at all. And, you know, we were talking offline about we all have bad days and goofy days where we all need support too. Everything's not smooth. And when we're stressed out, we need help. So how do we help those people living with dementia continue to have purpose, to have their voice be heard and do transitional help as it's needed? What are some of the things we can look at to identify that and to have that true open door policy that so many organizations of all different kinds say that they have, but most employees say it really isn't an open door policy, you know, so to have an honest look at, at what we're doing there. So that's kind of the nuts and bolts of this. And I thought, you know, Alan, with, with your background, you know, so many uh, organizations, large and small and, and behaviors and needs. Cindy, you know, you have done such a great job in, in your organization with Dementia Together about being inclusive and really reading those needs. So hopefully our conversation will be able to get people to think about this um, need. And, and maybe, maybe some people think, you know, I'm crazy and we're all crazy thinking this is a need. I, I just hear it way too much now. And it scares me that people don't feel heard and are embarrassed if they're having symptoms and if their disease is progressing when we all know chances are that's what's going to happen. Um, if we're truly supporting people with dementia, we shouldn't 
no one should feel ashamed or embarrassed. And we just need another level of support. Just like when we normally age through life from being a baby, you know, to, to death, we go through many different ages and stages of life. The, the same thing is happening with people with dementia. And we just need to figure out how do we do that in a dignified manner? So what I want to start out with first, and I, I'm going to go, uh, Elon, to you first. One, have you ever heard about this issue, you know, from people living with dementia or maybe uh, family members and care partners to professionals in the industry? I have not heard this conversation really be talked about. It's kind of a one-on-one -on -one and kind of behind the cloak type conversation um, that I've had. And, and I, I want to change. I want to change that. I have not heard about a intentional initiative, a program, a well-thought-out approach. And it doesn't mean that it doesn't exist, it doesn't mm -hmm. exist but I have not heard about it. And um, maybe people are doing some initiatives at a local level or individual mm -hmm. level, and that's great. And we would love to, as you said, to learn from them. Uh, but I think it's a, it's a major uh, gap um, in uh, relating to people with dementia, uh, as uh, equal members of society in a dignified way uh, and to work with them uh, along that journey and those the stages of the journey. Again, as you said, it's not a black and white. Um, there's issues of stigma here. Uh, there's issues um, of, um, you know, these individuals are giving so much to these organizations that are benefiting from them tremendously oftentimes um, most almost always without being paid. And so when they reach that point, where is that level of, of care and support for these individuals? So no, I have not heard about, about uh, it. Uh, I, I heard about it from people with dementia who are concerned about it tremendously. And we'll talk about it today, but uh, I have not heard about a program that is uh, intentionally addressing it in an anticipated way and I think it has a lot to do with capacity building towards that, uh, bridging that gap. Cindy, how about you? Have you heard this as an issue from people, you know, for, from your firsthand experience or people living with dementia families and or organizations? Yeah, I just think locally what we hear, because, you know, we want to have people on our advisory board who are living with dementia and their care partners helping us decide what programming we need to do. But there does come a point when it feels like it's too much for the person with dementia and, and we need to be okay and not take it personally. Like, oh, they don't want to be as involved anymore. They just want to step back from leadership. And I believe if we're truly taking into account the, how we define the disability of dementia as the recent facts are no longer storing as efficiently as they used to, but the feelings are storing the same way. We use the framework of the speckle method for that. If we really take that into account, uh, it makes it obvious that as more and more facts are failing to store, it's harder and harder to track three-way conversations. It's harder and harder to track complicated directions and crowds and a lot of noise. And so if, if we're not paying attention to that, I think we're doing a disservice to our friends that are living with the experience of dementia. So um, I hope 
that we're sensitive to that and, and, and bless these people when they feel like they need to just step back. And maybe I can only now, as I need to simplify my life, I can only be coming to the Zoom activities. I can't be coming to the in-person ones anymore. And for us to say, that's okay. If that's still your way to stay as socially engaged as you can, keeping your life as simple as it needs to be, then that's our job is to still walk that journey with them, but not try to make, make any of our friends fit into our mold of coming to certain activities or being the voice at various events. It's like, no, let's let them just be where they feel like they need to be. And again, the mantra from Speckle is the person with dementia is the expert. So let's listen to the expert. I so agree. You know, when you were talking, I, it made me think of the memory cafe when we first started that, where there wasn't a lot of collaboration because people are like, those are my people. They can't go to your support group. And there was, <laughs> there was just this stringentness about it. And then, you know, as people came from, you know, an hour away to come to our group, um, some of them wanted to start a group in their own community. And of course, I would help them do that. And people are like, why would you do that? You're going to lose them. And I'm like, because it's better for them. And more people will have access to these. I mean, it's a full circle of, you know, when we feel good about something, we're going to talk about it more. And we're going to be able to pull in others, you know, to partake and stuff. Um, the other thing that uh, I was thinking about was there's so many different factors that come into play when you were talking about um, the storing of things like, you know, some people will start out in there just savvier than heck on technology. And man, they are like little whippersnappers and they can do pretty much anything. And then all of a sudden things change and I, I don't really like Facebook anymore. And so that's difficult for me to communicate and emails kind of get lost in my box. And, you know, I'm not sure if I should answer the phone if I don't know who it is. And, and, you know, how do we set timers and technology for, for being able to meet and all the, I mean, you think of all the different forms that people like to communicate. It's crazy from in-person to emails. And then people have different email accounts. Sometimes that gets nuts too. And then you have texts and then you have you know, messenger, and then you have Instagram and TikTok, and, you know, all these different things, and none of them are staying the same. I don't like trying to keep up with them half the time, you know, and so we have, we have to learn to adjust that. And then same with, um, with travel, you know, travel can get complicated if it's going to events, how is that going to work? And, and people seem to feel super comfortable on zoom. So maybe it's not traveling, maybe it's zooming people in, but, um, you know, maybe it's mentorship support, you know, through this. So they're the lead, but they've got backup. Um, and a lot of times I think it's kind of an all or nothing. And, And what I love about pulling them in is I think organizations have gotten more creative um, they're meeting the needs on the street much better because they've got people on the trenches going, hey, this is really what we need. I mean, we know it. We live with it. We talk to people on this. So I think it's expanded the types of services and the amount of services that are available to people. And yet, if if someone is in charge of that, and a lot of times when when any of us do anything good, then we're given another project. And then we're given another project. And that is happening too in the world of dementia, where it can, really, can get really complicated mm-hmm. with that as well. Um, Elan, have you seen that? 
where, where people do really good and boy, the, boy, their voices really make it an impact. So then more stuff is piled on. Do you mean that they, 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 have, they have a capacity, cognitive capacity to do things and then more things are being put on them to, to do and then it reaches a point where they can't do it? Is that what you're... Yeah. And I think, you know, I want to be clear too, things are put on them, but they, they're ready to receive that because they like being in that role too. You know, they, they say when they live with purpose, you know, their, their symptoms subside, but then there becomes this point where it's too much and they're in the stress levels hit and then their symptoms increase and, Absolutely, yeah. and people aren't always seeing that like, um, you know, we talked a little bit offline too about someone who has always met their deadlines and now they're struggling. That should be a tickler that something's off. And, right. and sometimes it's ignored or it's just a phone call. Hey, reminding them of that deadline, which then just increases anxiety, which increases symptoms. Right. Well, I think you're touching an important issue of, we know the disease is pro- progressive, mm-hmm. you know, so where's the anticipatory approach, you know, and intention in a more intentional structured, structured way to, because you know, it's going to come and it's coming in all in bits and pieces and and oftentimes we put things together in, in in retrospect. So if you know it's coming, are we building the capacity to uh, relate, to con- to contain, to attend, to check in, uh, to support, to be there with them um, as they as they're going through this uh, process that could be uh, very scary for them because you know capacity is very fluid. And so am I doing well today? Am I not doing well? I, you know, I think I'm okay, but I'm not. So there's a lot of uncertainty there and anxiety, I'm sure too. And so, uh, which can impact ability to, to uh, per- perform, so to speak, I mean, to, do, to fulfill your duties or whatever you're volunteering to do. Uh, so just to create that space, the intentional space about it. But again, I believe in, in reality, it's capacity building towards, towards that, towards that to addressing that issue and i don't know how many organizations are actually are actually doing that yeah cindy anything you want to add there well i can just give you an example of a a couple where the care partner has become quite involved in learning strategies for how to create joy and just help her loved one live well with with dementia live contented even though he's got early onset um alzheimer's disease and he would be, I think, oh, such a great spokesperson for this is what it's like to live with dementia. And I am 58 years old. And, you know, like I started to think like, could that give him more purpose if he could be an advocate and share what his experience is with other people? It makes sense. It could give him purpose, but his personality, his love in life has never been to be out in front of the public eye (laughs) sharing his story. And so even though I think it would be a great idea initially, it was like, wait a minute, I need to consider his past, consider his history. This is not his gifting. It's not his desire. He just wants to, you know, do what he's always loved to do, not become this spokesperson. So for anybody who is, does become an advocate for their story and helping people live well for, with dementia, I feel like that is such a gift that they give the world, but it's also something that we should never be pushing on anybody if that's not what they like to do. If they're an introvert and they want to be at home and 
not be sharing their story with anyone, then let's pay attention to that and and help them, you know, still find purpose in other ways, not necessarily being a, a spokesperson. Yeah. Well, and I, and I think too, with that, I mean, I, I'll use the memory cafe as an example. We would get a lot of people that would come to the memory cafe and the care partners were all anxious to get there, but the people with dementia, not so much, <laughs> they, were, they, they really, you know, some were really in denial and yet by being around peers, you know, which so many of these groups now are, are allowing them to be part of a community. It's not so scary anymore. So just because somebody didn't like to do it before and was scared of it, it, it sometimes becomes a natural. And what I've heard from a lot of them too, is like, I've never had purpose like this before. Mm-hmm. I really feel like I'm making a difference because they're getting, you know, great support. They're getting wonderful feedback and, you know, they're feeling full. So I would just be worried that we don't automatically say you're an introvert. You probably wouldn't like to, because just like with an artist, you know, we, we tell people, oh, you know, people like, ah, they can't, they can't paint, they can't do that. And then all of a sudden you put a brush in their hand and it's like, oh my gosh, they should be commissioned. Yeah. It's giving the opportunity. (laughs) It's for sure. Giving the opportunity, but letting them choose versus us saying, we need you to do this, that kind of thing without the pressure. So I agree with you. Yeah. There's people that are discovering new passions. Yeah. Um, talents. Yeah. Yeah. And I want to take the example of actually um, from a world of, of nursing homes. Mm-hmm. We, we know we say in the field that um, discharge starts with admission. Mm-hmm. Um, and so just to take that, you know, to take that uh, in the context of this conversation today, um, I think that when an organization that serves people with dementia reaches out to an individual living with dementia and they're saying, listen, we believe that you have certain uh, you know, experience or expertise that would really help us realize our mission. Would you consider joining us? I think at that juncture, if the person says yes, at that juncture, there should be like a contract, like almost like a, a contract that she should specify. And it's more of a trust, you know, it's a trust thing that sitting down with the person with dementia or a group of them who came already to the organization and saying, we know your, your, your disease is going to be progressive. How do you envision the, 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 the end point, the, 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 the transition point? Let's sit together. Let's do focus group. Let's sit in meetings. Let's, let's brainstorm. How do you, at the, the first day, the first day, because, you know, once you get to the point that the symptoms are too overwhelming, and then it's, 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 it's harder to do. And it feels more like an afterthought, if at all, if it at all being attended to, and then there's a lot of hurt. Mm-hmm. And we can talk a lot about hurt, because I had people with dementia, telling me, writing me, leading national, international advocates and educators living with dementia, saying things uh, very uh, uh, concerning, disturbing about how they were mistreated how they felt like they're being exploited and how it impacted their well-being emotional well-being how it, they became depressed they became withdrawn uh they they were hurt the trust was broken clearly um and uh their self-esteem was impacted and they used harsh terms that i'm almost reluctant to say here today um but but the theme was 
almost feel being exploited. So given that there's so much hurt and there's three levels of hurt, there's the personal hurt that I see the individual living with dementia at that transition point, if they're not being, uh, those needs are not addressed. Uh, there's the issue um, of the trust mm-hmm. that we're all so reliant on if we want to accomplish anything with this you know, collaborative way with this population. And then there's the piece that we, we don't often talk about is the opportunity cost. Mm-hmm. And, and that is what these individuals um, could have done if they were supported along the way. And, and the example of that is in the context of, um, I'll give the Alzheimer's Association example of the, the efforts for cure, where I've seen uh, several people over the years with dementia and many celebrities I know recruited at the early stages of Alzheimer's and um, to the mission of curing the disease, but not being fully informed about the fundamental premises and the, the deep varied complexities of curing the disease. And then, and then they're becoming champions and many of them have inf- their influencers. So they have, you could have thousands of people behind them uh, in social media groups, et cetera. And, and then by the time they learn that they bought into this narrative that is unbalanced to say the least, um, it's too late for them. It's too late. So now you have, it's, either it's too late for them to even realize what happened. And then, and if they realize it's the broken trust and now my window for the opportunity cost, which means to work on uh, public health uh, prevention initiatives, programming, services, reduction of stigma, uh, they're lost. So there's multiple levels of, there's like triple, uh, trickling effects, spiral effects beyond the individual. Mm-hmm. Cindy, you, you look like you had a comment. Well, I was, I, I like, when you talk about personal hurt and, you know, that idea of trust that all will be well, and I'm, I'm with people that I, that I do trust to have my best interests at heart. I, a couple of things came to mind of, I do think we all need to assume best intentions mm-hmm. on everybody's part in having anybody with dementia, um, have a voice and then having people that, you know, maybe we're not living with dementia, but we're trying to come alongside our friends that are living with dementia. Like let's assume it best intention (laughs) of all of us. And I think we need to know that we have to be able to learn to love repetition of, of what's working and, and being real clear in our expectations on an ongoing basis. So that just because somebody said, two months ago that this is fine for me. Um, We can't assume that it's still fine two months later. I do think there's a lot of communication that has to happen just to be sure that our friend living with dementia who might be speaking on behalf of other people living with dementia feels safe, feels like this is the right thing to do. I I mean, it really is all, all about how are they feeling about this on any given day and us being willing to listen to that. I agree. Well, when you had mentioned, um, Alan, contracts, I've seen contracts in the past um, for advocacy that has tied somebody in for a year, sometimes two, and this is the mission of the organization, and these are the only things that they can speak about. And I can tell you there's a lot of pushback with that. And I think those contracts have changed where it's not so limiting in focus because people didn't always understand that they couldn't talk publicly about something else that they really cared about. 
you know, I'm, I'm seeing that as a broader umbrella. I would also like to just say on that topic of itself is that nothing in life is, is all or nothing. You know, there, there's a lot of muck in the middle. And if we don't listen to the muck in the middle, we really can't serve the true needs of the people. And so I do think it is about not controlling, but supporting. And I think one of the things that has happened with people living with dementia, and, and even like us, we're talking from an authentic voice. You know, we're not really scripted. We're, we're speaking from the heart. And I'm, I'm still a firm believer that, you know, things don't change if we don't get out of our head and into our hearts. You know, and, and I think that that, again, like Cindy says, you know, trust that everyone is working with good intent. And a lot of times people don't even know that they're doing that or, or could be perceived as not, not working in the best interest, just because it, it's one of those things where, well, we've always done it this way. And we all know companies in all industries that say, well, no, we're not going to change because we've always done it this way you know, working or not. And so that's a rut that I think we have to like dig ourselves out of and go, it's okay to expand that. But, you know, when we, when we hear authentic voices, we hear, we hear the good, the bad, and the ugly, and there's nothing wrong with any of them. It's just the only way we can improve. And, you know, when we're dealing with somebody with dementia in terms of I, I loved your idea about, you know, pulling them together and asking them for their thoughts. So, you know, we did that on Dementia Chats a while back again, but again, I think this conversation needs to, to go even further. Um, what was a common theme was they would like to pick their predecessor. They would like to train the next person coming on board. And yet there doesn't seem to be an open door to do that you know, and it's looked like, well, it's going to be more work for the rest of us. And the people with dementia are like, uh, no, you're really not helping me now. So um, let me get someone else trained because they also know they could, especially through COVID, they were like, we could get sick or die. Mm -hmm. You know, something could happen to us. And then nobody knows anything right. because, you know, so there's that fine, you know, fine realm of letting people take the lead but if nobody knows what they're doing or how they're doing it, it it can be a mess on a lot of different levels that can come into play which might not be the disease progression maybe somebody moves and they're just not there locally and it's a it's something that needs to be done on a local basis you know so right. there's there's just a lot of i think variables that need to be looked at and talked about to me it's kind of like you know, when I first stepped into this industry in 2009, you know, my primary goal was let's just have the conversation. We've got to get people comfortable with having the conversation. And to me, this is kind of that next level. If we're going to serve, if we are really truly going to um, pull people in, listen to their voices, then we need to, this is another conversation that needs to be had. Right. Elon. I want to just add a couple of things. One is there are Profession, as, as Cindy mentioned at the outset, uh, or before we started, I think also after we started, that you know people living with dementia, they are practically professionals mm -hmm. uh, because uh, we talk hundreds of times because they are living with a cognitive disability. We professionals and researchers and policymakers can only assume what it means to live with dementia. Even family members 
can't have a full understanding of what it actually means sometimes. And so um, if they are professionals, and if we truly value and their precious inputs, and we can't realize our mission without them, mm-hmm. then they need to be treated as professionals. And that has uh, you know, implications. And, uh, but even before that, there's a long, there's a, a very extensive research literature and practice literature about best practices with volunteering, let alone, before even talking about people with dementia. Mm-hmm. There's certain best practices that if I'm the Alzheimer's Association, I need to uh, 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 consider, adopt, adapt, whatever you want to do. But there are best practices that are evidence-based. How do you treat volunteers? How do you treat volunteers? And if you just do that, mm-hmm. a lot of it's going to be taken care of. And, of course, you need to make the adaptations to the cognitive disability, etc. all the things, with, and extra attention and extra capacity and extra compassion and extra sensitivity and attentiveness and responsiveness and, and all the things we talked about. So, um, so again, yeah, if they, are, if they are professional, treat them as professional, but there's a bigger conversation here, I think. And maybe it's for another show. And maybe you did that show before because you did hundreds in the past um, is what happens when a person with dementia, those things happen at work. Mm-hmm. We, we, you know, so many people with early onset dementia and how many of them were either fired, I'm talking about indignities and, mm-hmm. and, and, and far-reaching consequences for their lives, for their families, financially, and, and all that, and the stigma and all that. So there's a bigger conversation here in the work environment, which is very similar but different. Oh, I truly agree with that. And I mean, some of the horror stories of, of people working in the healthcare industry, you would think would be the most understanding and uh, I had one gentleman say he found out he had dementia in, through the HR department. He had to have a physical and the physical was reported back to work. And he was told he was, he was told he had dementia. Um, his job was terminated and they just let him go. I mean, he said he sat in his car and cried for like two hours. I mean, he could barely function. There was no support of family or, or anything. And his doctor, who we saw, didn't tell him, you know. And so, I mean, there's, there's craziness out there, you know, with those stories. And it is something that needs to be addressed. Um, and that would be a wonderful conversation. I think it's one that will be a little harder to address, even though we're starting to see businesses become dementia-friendly. I think it's got a ways to go. And I also feel strongly, and, and please tell me if you disagree, that we have to start with the organizations leading by example who say they're representing these people, getting it right first. On yeah, a, and I think just in fashion, because then it can come out in their conversations. Go ahead, Cindy. Well, it was just what Elon said about being intentional mm-hmm. and attentive to the actual experience of the person with dementia taking into account that they may or may not be storing all the information that we're talking about. They may or may not be able to be tracking this conversation we're having. And, you know, Lori, you've said it in the past. If, if it's just having that extra awareness, knowing that what's good for dementia is good for the world. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We just need to learn to interact with one another, offering up the dignity that, every single human being deserves. Right. 
yeah. that in itself can make a big difference. Yeah. And I yeah. want to add, uh, Lori, can I add something? Sure. Uh, so there are organizations uh, in, in, for example, in Canada, the Murray Alzheimer's Research and Education Program and um, with Sherry there and the article in 2011 that is called Moving Beyond Patient and Client Approaches, Mobilizing Authentic Partnerships uh, in Dementia Care Support and Services. And in the article, they describe how in their programs and services, they are working uh, collaboratively collaboratively with people with dementia and creating the programs mm-hmm. and monitoring the success of the program, the, you know, the constant input uh, and the leadership of people with dementia and the, the, the true valuation of their input. And so that's the kind of spirit that you think that the next step is also to think about, okay, but they are going to progress. So how do we take that spirit and translate it into an intentional program uh, that can uh, contain everything that comes along with the transition, which could be a lot. So you need the capacity again. So, but I want to also do the flip side of it is we've seen recently, there was a big story about a person, and I'm going to use names, but a person living uh, with dementia who um, uh, did a video to raise awareness for one, uh, you know, uh, purpose related to people living with dementia. And that video was, repurposed for another purpose that um, it is questionable, or maybe you know more than me, uh, whether the, uh, the end use was as originally intended. And that, um, and I don't know how that person feels about it, but there, there was something that felt, again, exploitative in that. And why am I mentioning it? Because if you don't get it right during the, their journey when they're when they're capable and I know capacity is multidimensional and it's fluid and it's in fly I get it but still if you don't get it right while they're working for your organization and you exploit them you're not really in a position to even think about transition because you didn't do it in the first place mm-hmm. no and and I think so often especially the more the larger organizations they have boilerplate templates you know to sign off and we can use this however we want and da 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 and people don't think about no it's for this purpose and things i mean we see kind of those deep fakes out all over the place and stuff and this wouldn't even be a deep fake it would be just taking something and and applying it in a different way that maybe the person had no idea that um, it was going to be intended to use that way. And, and I, think, I think for all of us, we need to watch that. But for when we're dealing with vulnerable adults, um, to me, that's a really big no-no. And that needs to be considered. And again, I think sometimes people don't, they don't even feel they're doing anything wrong because, you know, this person gave us permission to use this. And the, the depth of what's happening isn't really looked at. Right. You know, because the, the mission of the goal is is the end carrot. Um, I also want to mention that, you know, I, I would love to have the Canadian group join us back when we when we circle back and invite more people into this conversation before right. before <clears throat> things hit the fan. Cindy, do you want to add something or? Oh, I just think that's good secession planning mm-hmm. by pulling somebody in before you give a new assignment, because then that could be the person you're mentoring to take over. I mean, that's just good, comp- good practice for any of us dementia 
not much actually. Um, and, and the only other thing I was thinking with that was, again, I think we've talked about this before, when we're really relationship-based, when we really care about the person as they actually be, you know, they're our friends, mm-hmm. that conversation can happen. But when it's just organizational, what are our, what do we want to accomplish with the organization? That's when we lose the ability, I think, to say, wait, you, friend, let's talk about how much is too much. Let's talk about, you know, how long you want to keep going. Um, I, it seems like that should naturally happen if we have truly been relationship based, mm-hmm. person centered, that whole thing. Yeah. So um, to add to that, I think there's a, you know, there's what happens between the organization and the person with dementia, the impact on the person with dementia, their family, the, the opportunity cost. And I want to extend that opportunity cost a little bit more, kind of a high level uh, as a society level. There's a deep misunderstanding of dementia in society. There's a lot of stigma, a lot of labeling, a lot of prejudices. And that means a lot of hurt and missed opportunities on all levels, on all levels. It doesn't matter what aspect of dementia care, support programming, you look at policy. Uh, and so the people are looking up. There's not many organizations that do the, you know, the work for people with dementia. So people in society uh, who maybe not even touched by dementia, let's say, are looking up to organizations who write on their name dementia that we're serving people with them. They look up. So the, the, the moral imperative, it's a moral and practical imperative is even higher because it's not just what's happening in our little sandbox. People looking up to how people with dementia are being treated in dementia organizations. Mm-hmm. So it's, it's a vast impact. And if we don't get it right, then again, it's that missed opportunity at the, at the society level. <clears throat> and, um, I, I know it's also the analysis that the, the, I want to take all, again, the um, symbolic analogy from nursing home world where I do a lot of work. Um, you know, people who worked in nursing homes from the very first day that the first nursing home in America opened were heroes. But now we hear because of the pandemic, suddenly we hear the Lord, the word of hero. They were always heroes. They were always heroes, but they were far from being treated as such. And, and just to apply it to people with dementia and the context of dementia organizations, okay, uh, they are the experts, as Cindy said, as you, Laurie, preach all the time. They are the professionals. They live with the disease. They know what cognitive disability means. We don't. We don't fully know that. And so uh, if they're truly the experts, treat them as, as such before, during, and after with very clear expectations about the end point from day one. Oh, I, I couldn't agree with you more on that. Well, this has been a, a really interesting conversation and hopefully it gets other people thinking about what they're doing and how they're doing it. And I know, uh, Aileen, you had mentioned about um, organizations that, that have the term dementia in you know, their title and stuff, but I mean, it, this is all all types of dementias and organizations as a whole, if it's Alzheimer's, Lewy body, FTD, aphasia, you know, I mean, right. the, list, the list goes on. And some of them might not even have that title in there, like uh, caring kind, but, you know, 
it's all organizations that are that are um, working and embodied to improve things. Sometimes we have to. It's you know the the improvement isn't always outside. Sometimes it's within where we need to right. do right. the adjustment. Yeah, and I'm I'm very curious, Lori, if uh, the the I don't know if it's an organization, but the deep D E E P guides in the UK. DEEP stands for the Dementia Engagement and Empowerment Project in the UK, which is a series of guides, short guides, but very helpful, created by people living with dementia. You know, um, and there's an email, there's a phone number, we can, we can maybe, uh, and the reason why I'm mentioning it is because they have many guides that, and some of them are aimed at uh, organizations wanting to work well with people with dementia. And now, and I know some of those guys are terrific. And I'm wondering, mm-hmm. do they have a guide? Uh, and I almost want to call this this what you call this show today mm-hmm. as they transition. Mm-hmm. As they transition, mm-hmm. you know, do we have a guide? Do we're starting to have a more meaningful conversation mm-hmm. in a more intentional and structured way? I'm really curious if they have anything. If they don't, I personally want to write them and say, would you consider doing that? Yeah, that would be that would be wonderful. That would, I, I, you know, the the more information we can gather from all around the world at all levels, uh, you know, to me is is good. And I would encourage um, organizations and individuals if you're looking at this, don't be shy. Don't keep it to yourself. Share it. Reach reach out with others because I think when we layer things, when we learn from one another, we can all improve. And what works for one organization might not work for another organization. That's okay. That's person-centered at its core, you know, that's what it's about, is figuring out what's going to work best within this particular situation. And um, I, I, I don't see, personally, I don't see any downsides to this conversation. I just think everybody can improve and, and um, feel more purposeful and more satisfied. And when that happens, more people are attracted to come into that that bowl, whatever it is. Right. Uh, And and Laurie, you know, some organizations uh, may be starting to think about it now after this show, and and that would be great. But the reality of it is that some will not. Mm -hmm. Others will do it uh, partially. It's also a matter of quality. It's not just we're doing it. Mm -hmm. How do you do it? Is it meaningful? And and as you said, Laurie, in the introduction today, with, with their input, and I'm concerned about all those people with dementia over the years and re- more recently who are who left those organizations. Maybe they're starting to think about it now, but they're already out. Now they're left with the uh, emotional impact. And who is going to support these individuals as they're sitting now in their homes with could be also some devastating experiences that I'm not exaggerating. Now I have I have emails from people with dementia telling me very, very hurtful things that happened to them. Who is supporting them emotionally? Now that they're out, yeah. In this particular context of the transition, well, and I, I think one of the things that that people don't realize, and this goes even for support groups and stuff, you know, on social media and Facebook and things like that. Um, I've had people reach out who have gotten kicked out of a group, and so sometimes that's how it, this feels when they can no longer do what they want to do, and they're suicidal. They're like, that was my life. Mm-hmm. That was my lifeline. That was my connection. And so the the trauma, I think sometimes is ignored, like it's not that big of a deal. This is black and white, we can logic this out. 
Well, not necessarily when you're dealing with somebody with dementia and depending on how it was handled and, and even what words we use um, and, and the tone of voice, you know, or is it just an email going, you're out of here, you know, so-and-so is going to step in, you know, I mean, there, there's right. just a lot there. And, right, right. and again, it doesn't end when a decision is made, you know, we should still be supporting that person. Right, right. I think, Elon, you talked about, you know, our moral imperative. And I think with any transition in roles for anybody living with dementia, our moral imperative is to work with the family, as well as the person who might not now be doing what they used to do and help the family figure out a way to bring purpose to their loved ones so that it's not this scarring trauma that they're still having to deal with, but that life can still be okay. How do we still make it okay now, even though that might've happened in the past? Um, But I I think we need to be serving those families with Mm -hmm. strategies that work at that point Mm -hmm. so their loved one can live with lifelong well-being. Yeah. Yes, and, and that switch needs to be intentional, mm-hmm. right? And and I would I would I would add that, and it's 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 uh, I think it needs to be said, and I'll say it because um, within the limitations, the major limitations of the cognitive disability, there's also an expectation that uh, people with dementia will be respectful. So again, and I started by saying within the limitations, because that could, could, could you know, compromise that ability. And we're seeing very, uh, you know, painful examples of that recently uh, from people with dementia. But, but, but in the contract, people with dementia as part of the contract need to also be, you know, respectful for the organizations, for the people who they work with, because that, it goes both ways. So I had to put it there because you know, if we're balanced, we need to be really fair. Because there's different personalities, and you know, and and so there, there's, it goes both ways. Yeah, but again, when you if you are dealing with frontal temporal lobe, and they don't have control over that, I mean, that is something that an organization needs to understand and respect, and not take that so personally either. And and sometimes I think it's really easy for us to get hurt and forget all the stuff we tell all the families that we're dealing with, don't take it personally, you know, um, because, because there's a friendship, there's a bond, there was a working relationship, all of those things, but things have changed. And so it's, you know, when dementia hits your own family, you know, you hear professionals say all the time, it's like, wow, this is different than what I thought it was, you know, and what I've been telling everybody to do isn't always necessarily working or practical. I mean, it, I mean, it just sweeps you up and and takes you to a different angle. And so I think we have to be a little bit careful with the, with that. Um, And again, I'm always up for a respectful conversation, but again, we have to realize what it is we're dealing with there and that personality sometimes can change. The other thing that I think is difficult in this, and I haven't found a, a, a great workaround, but a lot of times people with dementia you know, work for an organization or volunteer, you know, advocate for an organization. And that's really their thing. And, you know, maybe their spouse or their family doesn't, they they don't have any contacts there. This is just kind of the thing they do. It's kind of like their work where, you know, 
my wife or husband uh, wasn't calling up and talking to my boss. And so there can be this thing when, when something is starting to maybe kind of derail a little bit or change that if an organization reaches out to family, that can be interpreted, in, interpreted as disrespectful as well. And so again, having those conversations up front, just kind of like when, you know, people with dementia say, you know, when's it time to quit, quit driving? And a lot of them will have that conversation earlier on and they'll write themselves a letter. They'll do a video and say, when this happens, I know I might not remember, but you will this is when my license, you right. know, the keys need to be pulled. And so setting that up ahead of time, because there should be even from, you know, safety information. I, I, I think of, again, with our memory cafes, I like to get, you know, a backup contact, even for couples, because what if something happens there in, you know, you might want to get a hold right. of kids or whatever. So it's, it's a tough, it's a tough, you know, and it's not, it's not going to work the same for everybody. Right. Right. And as, as Cindy mentioned, you know, going back to the close trusting relationship, mm-hmm. if you, if you know that there's a need to build a close, close trusting relationship, if you build it and nurture it, and if you're in tune to their relationship, then, then you are in a much better position to contain sense, a change, contain, relate, and, and work with the person uh, and if needed with the, with the family. But if, if you, so I remember, uh, I think it was uh, Danielle from Australia. They said the number one item of our mission statement is close trusting relationship. Mm-hmm. And it goes in any direction of the care organization, not just between staff and, and uh, residents, mm-hmm. in any direction. And that's what every, everything, that's the core. That's where everything starts. And when you have that, you're in a much better position to do a lot of things. You can do a lot of things in nursing homes and you can do a lot of things in this particular context of the transition. Because if you don't do it upfront in a proactive anticipatory way, then it's going to get out of hand. And then everybody is going to be uh, stressed or hurt. And then it's, it's much harder to deal with, much harder to deal with. Yeah. Well, and I'll just add to that too, that, you know, one of the things that I don't always know happens and it probably, it probably happens probably, I'm thinking not enough from what I hear is just a pat on the back being told that they're doing a good job, you know, through it. I think it's assumed that people appreciate that, but we all know what that does for ourselves when somebody actually comes out and says, and you really, we really appreciate this. We know how much work this is. And, you know, little things like that can make a big, a big, big difference, not only to the person, but to their families as well, knowing, yeah. you know, that, that really can lift a, a family up and make them want to maybe get a little bit more involved too, right. because, you know, families can be leveraged just as much as a person with dementia to be an advocate and a voice. Right. Right. Well. Absolutely, because many many people with dementia live with that 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 uh, anxiety and uncertainty and the fear. Am I doing right? Am I not? They may you you probably may often won't see it, right? They put a face. They were high level whatever managers all their lives, and they got they got it. They got it mm-hmm. from, from a certain generation. You know, you don't complain. You don't. And what? And but if you're not in tune with them, you're going to miss the signs, and mm-hmm. and then you're going to be uh, not in sync with them emotionally. So the checking in, as you say, Lori, 
the checking in, the frequent checking in, the relationship enables you to, um, to, uh, to, to for them also to come out, so to speak, and, and be forthcoming about the struggle as opposed to putting a face, I, I got this. Mm-hmm. Until it blows out of out of control and things are really there's damage for for people for organizations and then it's kind of it's kind of too late it's very hard to pick up the pieces then so isn't it better to put a little bit of effort early on in an anticipatory mm-hmm. way as opposed to uh, after the fact and to add on to that you know when they're able to come out and not feel embarrassed that things have changed. They know themselves how good it feels to help someone else. And there's people in their organization that want to help them and support them too. And they're denying them that. But yet again, it's it's a natural, it's a natural thing for all of us to to want to help and support one another. And we can't do it if there's not an honest conversation. Right. Cindy, do you have oh yeah, I mean, you're just like you said, we deprive people the privilege of serving us when we're too prideful to say, I need help. Yep. Yep. Yeah. So making that okay to be somebody, not only who offers help, but to say, you know, there's times in our lives, there's seasons in our lives when we need to be on the other side of that. Right. Yeah. Right. And I'll take the analogy from nursing homes again, you know, when people, when older adults die in nursing home, oftentimes they're being taken out of the back door quietly. Mm-hmm. And nobody talks about it, and and it depends. There's more organizations that are more aware, of course. Uh, it, it's different with veterans. It's different with veterans. That, you know, they'll they'll go with a flag and sort of front door, and you know. But 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 there's more awareness, and there's more respect and ceremonies to celebrate their life now. There's more of that. We see that, but the, the, I, I believe that the um, analogy here is uh, is that the residents who are staying behind. They know that they're next. This is how they're going to be treated from the back door quietly. Don't talk about it. Uh, and so when we, if I'm a person with dementia, and I work for an organization that serves people with dementia and I serve them say for, for three years and I give them my heart and soul and with a lot of personal, professional, financial sacrifice. Uh, giving them everything I can with a cognitive disability. And then I see Joe, who just started two years before me, uh, not receiving the approach that we have to set as a standard in a transition process, then I know I'm next. So how good, what good is this going to do in terms of building trust? I'm, this is what I'm going to, the way I'm going to be treated. So it has a, a multiple layers of effects beyond the individual hurt uh, for, the, for the person who is leaving. Agree. Any last comments? No, the phrase intentional honor came to mind when you said that. <laughs> you know, it's interesting you say that because the definition of dignity in the Webster Dictionary is uh, the state of being honored, esteemed, and valued. You know, so again, if you tie this in, into the core of the, of the close trusting relationship, then you have a roadmap. But it has to be before day one of recruiting people with dementia to serve and contribute uh, their their time, efforts, and energies uh, to realizing the missions of these organizations. Agree. Anything else that you wanted to add, Elon? I just want to thank you, Lori, for doing that. Uh, Because you've always been, from the very first day over a decade ago in Minnesota, where I lived there, you know, when I first heard about you and what you do, 
I knew you were cutting edge. There was no, everybody likes to talk about cutting edge research, Alzheimer's, fine. But I knew you were cutting edge uh, and you were cutting edge way before then. Um, and that's why I said, I have to connect with you. I have to collaborate with you. And it really proved true, you know, and today is just yet another example, how you always thinking ahead, what's the next issue? And you're not being restricted by certain organizational uh, bureaucracies or politics. You are looking straight ahead into the future, into the horizon. You're talking with people with dementia or the experts and you said, this is the next thing. So that's what you did today. And that's what we're so grateful Oh, thank you. Thank you. Well, I just, you know, we, and we mentioned this in our conversation today about how the disease is fluid. I think our services have to be fluid. And so often it's easy to get complacent because it's working, but that should never, ever be the standard in my mind. We should always be looking and listening and learning and, and, and applying things because even if it works well, there's going to be a point in time where it doesn't you know, or something or someone else starts something that's a little bit more creative and a little different. And then you're going to wonder, well, where'd my peeps go? Why isn't this working anymore? And you're behind the eight ball. And there's no reason to do that if we all just accept the fact that what we're doing is never, ever going to be perfect. And we can always do better. You know, that that just takes, to me, that takes the weight off the expectation. And, and it allows people to get out there and try stuff and just change it up as you see, it needs to be changed. And this is just another one of those things that just needs to be addressed. And we're not all going to do it the same and some will never, ever do it. And, and that's okay. But again, I'm a, I'm a firm believer in having an, an open, honest conversation where people feel welcomed for all opinions and that they are able to, um, to share their ideas and their views um, I'm sure there's concepts we've totally overlooked that, you know, someone will bring up and, you know, come at it. I haven't picked a date yet, but that I will be putting that on the calendar and um, we'll welcome people to come. It'll be an open forum. Um, so everyone is welcome and uh, share your ideas and your thoughts because, you know, we're three and how many billions of people in the world, <laughs> you know, just having a conversation so thank you to Cindy and, and Elon for their great insights um, and to be able to have this comfortable conversation. I think we covered a lot of territory and, and hopefully, you know, people will think about this and start preparing what, what does a succession plan look like? How, do, how is that dignified? How do we make sure that it's, it's safe and comfortable and respectful and helps build your organization and your reputation as well as theirs? I don't think it has to be like any everything with dementia. I don't think it has to be com- complicated. I think we just have to have a conversation and work through it. So Terrific. thanks again. Terrific, Lori. Uh, Cindy, you had something else you wanted to say or last word? Thank you for, for having us and raising an awareness as usual. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should have you each um, just give your contact information out. I know, Cindy, yours is on there with uh, dementiatogether.org. Do you want to give out an email as well? Sure, it's Cindy, C-Y-N-D-Y, at DementiaTogether.org. And Elon, how about you? Would you like to give any contact information out? Yeah, I'll just uh, give my uh, email, which is my name, uh, ElonCaspi at gmail.com. So that would be E-I-L-O-N as Nancy, uh, and then C-A-S as Sam, P as Paul, I 
at gmail.com. Wonderful. Well, thanks everyone. And you know how to reach me, just go to uh, alzheimerspeaks.com. And if you want to email me, just Lori at alzheimerspeaks.com. Um, but let us know if you've got other topics too, that you'd like to hear about, you know, we just have to keep the conversations rolling. So thanks everyone. Bye now. Thank you, Lori. Bye Cindy. Great Bye. To Hi, I'm Lori LeBay, and I wanted to tell you about Alzheimer's Speaks, which is another great podcast. You see, my own mother lived with dementia for 30 years, and I felt lost. Did you know every three seconds someone in the world is being diagnosed with dementia? Odds are it's going to hit your families too. We want to help you connect to services, products, tools, research, and stories so you can be prepared. Please subscribe to Alzheimer's Speaks on your favorite podcast platform.